Chapter Fourteen, Part Three of How I Found Livingston. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingston: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Dr. Livingston, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Fourteen, Part Three. Our Journey from Ujiji to Unyanyembe. The morning of the tenth day I assured the people that we were close to food, cheered the most amiable of them with promise of abundant provender, and hushed the most truculent knaves with a warning not to tempt my patient too much, lest we came to angry blows, and then struck away east by north through the forest, with the almost exhausted expedition dragging itself weakly and painfully behind me. It was a most desperate position, certainly, and I pitied the poor people far more than they pitied themselves, and, though I fumed and stormed in their presence when they were disposed to lie down and give up, never was a man further from doing them injury. I was too proud of them, but under the circumstances it was dangerous, nay, suicidal, to appear doubtful or dubious of the road. The mere fact that I still held on my way, according to the doctor's little pearly monitor, the compass, had a grand moral effect on them, and, though they demurred in plaintive terms and with pinched faces, they followed my footsteps with a trustfulness which quite affected me. For long miles we trudged over smooth, sloping sward, with a vision of forest and parkland beauty on our right and left, and in front of us such as is rarely seen. At a pace that soon left the main body of the expedition far behind, I strode on with a few gallant fellows, who, despite their heavy loads, kept pace with me. After a couple of hours we were ascending the easy slope of a ridge, which promised to decide in a few minutes the truth or the inaccuracy of my chart. Presently we arrived at the eastern edge of the ridge, and one thousand feet below the high plateau on which we stood, we distinguished the valley of Imrera. By noon we were in our old camp. The natives gathered round, bringing supplies of food, and to congratulate us upon having gone to Ujiji and returned. But it was long before the last member of the expedition arrived. The doctor's feet were very sore, bleeding from the weary march. His shoes were in a very worn-out state, and he had so cut and slashed them with a knife to ease his blistered feet, that any man of our force would have refused them as a gift, no matter how ambitious he might be to encase his feet a la wasungu. Osmani, the guide, was very much taken aback when he discovered that the tiny compass knew the way better than he did, and he declared it as his solemn opinion that it could not lie. He suffered much in reputation from having contested the palm with the little thing, and ever afterwards his boasted knowledge of the country was considerably doubted. After halting a day to recruit ourselves, we continued our journey on the 18th January, 1872, towards Unyanyembe. A few miles beyond Imrera, Asmani lost the road again, and I was obliged to show it to him, by which I gained additional honor and credit as a leader and guide. My shoes were very bad, and it was difficult to decide whose were the worst in condition, the doctor's or mine. A great change had come upon the face of the land since I had passed northward en route to Ujiji. The wild grapes now hung in clusters along the road, the corn-ears were advanced enough to pluck and roast for food, the various plants shed their flowers, and the deep woods and grasses of the country were greener than ever. On the 19th we arrived at Mapakwa's deserted village. 
the doctor's feet were very much chafed and sore by the marching. He had walked on foot all the way from Urimba, though he owned a donkey, while I, considerably to my shame, be it said, had ridden occasionally to husband my strength, that I might be enabled to hunt after arrival at camp. Two huts were cleared for our use, but, just as we had made ourselves comfortable, our sharp-eyed fellows had discovered several herds of game in the plain west of Mapaqua. Hastily devouring a morsel of cornbread with coffee, I hastened away, with Bilali for a gun-bearer, taking with me the famous Riley rifle of the doctor and a supply of Fraser's shells. After plunging through a deep stream, and getting wet again, and pushing my way through a dense break, I arrived at a thin belt of forest, through which I was obliged to crawl, and in half an hour I had arrived within one hundred and forty yards of a group of zebras, which were playfully biting each other under the shade of a large tree. Suddenly rising up, I attracted their attention, but the true old rifle was at my shoulder, and crack-crack went both barrels, and two fine zebras, a male and a female, fell dead under the tree where they had stood. In a few seconds their throats were cut, and after giving the signal of my success, I was soon surrounded by a dozen of my men, who gave utterance to their delight by fulsome compliments to the merits of the rifle, though very few to me. When I returned to camp with the meat, I received the congratulations of the doctor, which I valued far higher, as he knew from long experience what shooting was. When the edible portions of the two zebras were hung to the scale, we found, according to the doctor's own figures, that we had seven hundred and nineteen pounds of good meat, which, divided among forty-four men, gave a little over sixteen pounds to each person. Bombay especially was very happy, as he had dreamed a dream wherein I figured prominently as shooting animals down right and left, and when he had seen me depart with that wonderful Riley rifle he had not entertained a doubt of my success, and accordingly had commanded the men to be ready to go after me as soon as they should hear the reports of the gun. The following is quoted from my diary. January twentieth, 1872. Today was a halt. On going out for a hunt I saw a herd of eleven giraffes. After crossing Mapaqua stream I succeeded in getting within one hundred and fifty yards of one of them, and fired at it, but though it was wounded I did not succeed in dropping it, though I desired the skin of one of them very much. In the afternoon I went out to the east of the village and came to a herd of six giraffes. I wounded one of them, but it got off despite my efforts. What remarkable creatures they are! How beautiful their large limpid eyes! I could have declared an oath that both shots had been a success, but they sheared off with the stately movements of a clipper about to tack. When they ran they had an ungainly dislocated motion, somewhat like the contortions of an Indian notch or a Theban danseuse, a dreamy, undulating movement, which even the tail, with its long fringe of black hair, seemed to partake of. The doctor, who knew how to console an ardent but disappointed young hunter, attributed my non-success to shooting with leaden balls, which were too soft to penetrate the thick hide of the giraffes, and advised me to melt my zinc canteens with which to harden the lead. It was not the first time that I had cause to think the doctor an admirable travelling companion. None knew so well how to console one for bad luck. None knew so well how to elevate one in his own mind. If I killed a zebra, did not his friend Oswell, the South African hunter, and himself long ago come to the conclusion that zebra meat was the finest in Africa? If I shot a buffalo cow, she was sure to be the best of her kind, and her horns were worth while carrying home as specimens, and was she not fat? 
If I returned without anything, the game was very wild, or the people had made a noise, and the game had been frightened, and who could stalk animals already alarmed? Indeed, he was a most considerate companion, and knowing him to be literally truthful, I was proud of his praise when successful, and when I failed I was easily consoled. Ibrahim, the old Pagazi, whose feelings had been so lacerated in Yukawendi, when his ancient Kiburu broke, before leaving Ujiji, invested his cloth in a slave from Manuema, who bore the name of Ulimengo, which signifies the world. As we approached Mopakwa, Ulimengo absconded with all his master's property, consisting of a few cloths and a bag of salt, which he had thought of taking to Unyanyembe for trade. Ibrahim was inconsolable, and he kept lamenting his loss daily in such lugubrious tones that the people, instead of sympathizing, laughed at him. I asked him why he purchased such a slave, and while he was with him, why he did not feed him. Replied he, tartly, was he not my slave? Was not the cloth with which I bought him mine? If the cloth was my own, could I not purchase what I liked? Why do you talk so? Ibrahim's heart was made glad this evening by the return of Ulimengo with the salt and the cloth, and the one-eyed old man danced with his great joy, and came in all haste to impart to me the glad news. Lo, the world has come back. Sure, my salt and my cloth are also with him. Sure, to which I replied that he had better feed him in future, as slaves required food as well as their masters. From ten p.m. to midnight the doctor was employed in taking observations from the star Canopus, the result of which was that he ascertained Mapakwa, district of Utanda, Yukonongo, to be in south latitude six degrees, eighteen minutes, forty seconds. On comparing it with its position as laid down in my map by dead reckoning, I found we differed by three miles, I having laid it down at six degrees, fifteen minutes, south latitude. The day following was a halt. The doctor's feet were so inflamed and sore that he could not bear his shoes on. My heels were also raw, and I viciously cut large circles out of my shoes to enable me to move about. Having converted my zinc canteens into bullets, and provided myself with a butcher and a gun-bearer, I set out for the lovely parkland and plain west of Mapakwa stream, with the laudable resolution to obtain something, and seeing nothing in the plain, I crossed over a ridge, and came to a broad basin covered with tall grass, with clumps here and there a fefene palm, with a stray mimosa or so scattered about. Nibbling off the branches of the latter, I saw a group of giraffes, and then began stalking them through the grass, taking advantage of the tall grass-grown ant-hills that I might approach the wary beasts before their great eyes could discover me. I contrived to come within one hundred and seventy-five yards, by means of one of these curious hummocks, but beyond it no man could crawl without being observed. The grass was so thin and short. I took a long breath, wiped my perspiring brow, and sat down for a while. My black assistants also, like myself, were almost breathless with the exertion, and the high expectations roused by the near presence of the royal beasts. I toyed lovingly with the heavy Riley, saw to my cartridges, and then stood up and turned, with my rifle ready, took one good, long, steady aim, then lowered it again to arrange the sights, lifted it up once more, dropped it. A giraffe half-turned his body, for the last time I lifted it, took one quick sight at the region of the heart, and fired. He staggered, reeled, and then made a short gallop, but the blood was spouting from the wound in a thick stream, and before he had gone two hundred yards he came to a dead halt, with his ears drawn back, 
and allowed me to come within twenty yards of him, when, receiving a zinc bullet through the head, he fell dead. "'Allahu Akbar!' cried Kamisi, my butcher, fervently. "'This is meat, master!' I was rather saddened than otherwise at seeing the noble animal stretched before me. If I could have given him back his life, I think I should have done so. I thought it a great pity that such splendid animals, so well adapted for the service of man in Africa, could not be converted to some other use than that of food. Horses, mules, and donkeys died in these sickly regions, but what a blessing for Africa would it be if we could tame the giraffes and zebras for the use of explorers and traders. Mounted on a zebra, a man would be enabled to reach Ujiji in one month from Bagamoyo, whereas it took me over seven months to travel that distance. The dead giraffe measured sixteen feet nine inches from his right forehoof to the top of his head, and was one of the largest size, though some have been found to measure over seventeen feet. He was spotted all over with large, black, nearly round patches. I left Kamisi in charge of the dead beast, while I returned to camp to send off the men to cut it up, and convey the meat to our village. But Kamisi climbed a tree for fear of the lions, and the vultures settled on it, so that when the men arrived on the spot, the eyes, the tongue, and a great part of the posteriors were eaten up. What remained weighed as followed when brought in and hung to the scales. One hind leg, 134 pounds. One hind leg, 136 pounds. One foreleg, 160 pounds. One foreleg, 160 pounds. Ribs, 158 pounds. Neck, 74 pounds. Rump, 87 pounds. Breast, 46 pounds. Liver, 20 pounds. Lungs, 12 pounds. Heart, 6 pounds. Total weight of edible portions, 993 pounds. Skin and head, 181 pounds. The three days that followed, I suffered from a severe attack of fever, and was unable to stir from bed. I applied my usual remedies for it, which consisted of colocynth and quinine, but experience has shown me that an excessive use of the same cathartic weakens its effect, and that it would be well for travellers to take with them different medicines to cause proper action in the liver, such as colocynth, calomel, resin of jalap, epsom salts, and that no quinine should be taken until such medicine shall have prepared the system for its reception. The doctor's prescription for fever consists of three grains of resin of jalap and two grains of calomel, with tincture of cardamoms put in just enough to prevent irritation of the stomach, made into the form of a pill, which is to be taken as soon as one begins to feel the excessive languor and weariness which is the sure forerunner of the African type of fever. An hour or two later a cup of coffee, unsugared and without milk, ought to be taken to cause a quicker action. The doctor also thinks that quinine should be taken with the pill, but my experience, though it weighs nothing compared against what he has endured, has proved to me that quinine is useless until after the medicine has taken effect. My stomach could never bear quinine unless subsequent to the cathartic. A well-known missionary at Constantinople recommends travellers to take three grains of tartar emetic for the injection of the bilious matter in the stomach but the reverend doctor possibly forgets that much more of the system is disorganized than the stomach, and, though in one or two cases of a slight attack this remedy may have proved successful, it is altogether too violent for an enfeebled man in Africa. I have treated myself faithfully after this method three or four times, but I could not conscientiously recommend it. For cases of eudicaria, I could recommend taking three grains of tartar emetic, but then a stomach pump would answer the purpose as well. On the 27th we set out for Misangi. 
About halfway I saw the head of the expedition on the run, and the motive seemed to be to communicate quickly, man after man, to those behind, until my donkey commenced to kick and lash behind with its heels. In a second I was made aware of the cause of this excitement, by a cloud of wild bees buzzing about my head, three or four of which settled on my face and stung me frightfully. We raced madly for about half a mile, behaving in as wild a manner as the poor bestung animals. As this was an unusually long march, I doubted if the doctor could march it, because his feet were so sore, so I determined to send four men back with the katanda, but the stout old hero refused to be carried, and walked all the way to camp after a march of eighteen miles. He had been stung dreadfully in the head and in the face, the bees had settled in handfuls in his hair, but after partaking of a cup of warm tea and some food, he was as cheerful as if he had never travelled a mile. At Marera, central Yukonongo, we halted a day to grind grain, and to prepare the provision we should need during the transit of the wilderness between Marera and Manyara. End of chapter 14, part 3